All right, good morning. Welcome back. As we get started again, it's good to see you brothers again and have time to get into the word. Um, we're going to start in Hosea this morning, but we're, we're, we're going to be doing what we usually call the minor prophets, um, probably more appropriately called the latter prophets, um, and, and really uh, of the latter prophets, the twelve. So that's kind of our focus is, is those. And so I, what I want to do this morning, because we've been off for just about, just over three months, is sort of catch us back up on the story because I want you, I, I want you to, as we read Hosea even 1 through 3 this morning and look through those passages, I really want the, um, I, I want sort of those passages to pop out for you the way they ought to because you remember what we've been covering. Um, but when you've been offered just over three months from covering it, it might not happen as quickly. So I just want to review and kind of catch us up. Some of this review... Um, Ron gave you some of the new pages to the review where it starts in summary. Does your first page on your notes start in summary he gave you? Yeah, yeah. yeah, those are kind of the new pages of the review to attach us to today. Some of the pages of the review at the front end are actually old review pages from when I started the prophets in general um, that I pulled forward just to remind you of. So they're on our slides already. You don't have those on your notes. Uh, but we will post the slides, which we normally do. Um, all right, let me pray. Father, we are thankful uh, for this morning and the chance to um, spend time on your word, to look at the prophets, the latter prophets, to consider Hosea through Malachi, to begin um, studying what it is that you have said in your word, superintended by your spirit, um, as you have, have taught us through your prophets. Um, we pray as we review the story that's being told, as we pull some of these threads um, from Genesis all the way through to the latter prophets, that you would um, illumine our minds to understand your word and to rejoice in you, to be thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, brothers, so I want to catch us up with the story as we begin Hosea. Um, Hosea is going to begin us, and as, you, as we look at the section of the 12, I'll talk about a little bit more in, in a minute. Um, they're they're going to drop us into different centuries, but Hosea is really going to begin us in the 8th century BC, um, which if you remember your history, biblical history, 8th century BC, is that before or after the exile? It's before the exile, right? So Hosea is going to drop us in before the exile. Some of what we looked at in some of the major prophets or, or the first part of the latter prophets we looked at, if you remember, we looked at some of that um, that was um, pre-exilic, like Isaiah, and we looked at some of it that was during the exile, like in, in Ezekiel, right? And so we were, and or Jeremiah. So we looked at various periods even there with those prophets, and, and these prophets are going to bounce us from Hosea, um, who's going to be pre-exile, 700 to 720 BC, um, all the way to Malachi, who's going to be in the 5th or 6th century somewhere, which is going to be post-exile and, and return to the land. You guys follow me on that? Okay, so those, those prophets are going to drop in those areas. And so, but what we need to do is we recognize that we need to catch ourselves up with a story so we see what's happening all together. You see up here, I, I put up here, I, I, I kind of have this overall theme I'm driving after, which is 
the kingdom of God given through covenant, that essentially throughout Scripture what we're seeing is God is um, giving his kingdom to man or including man in his kingdom, and he's giving that by way of covenant. In other words, it's not just that the kingdom is being given, but it's being given through covenant. So you think about you give all your stuff to your spouse by covenant, right? You get married, and now what's yours is hers, and what's hers is yours. Make sense? Okay. Um, and, and God is essentially relating to us in the same way. He wants to include us in his, in his kingdom what, so that what is his is ours, right? And, and he does that through covenant. So I, I kind of summed it up this way, stealing really from Graham Goldsworthy and Vaughn Roberts from the very beginning of our series on biblical theology, saying that we're talking about God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So you think about Adam is God's people. I know that sounds like strange to say Adam singular is God's people plural, but Adam is the federal head of God's people. He's the representative. That's why in Adam's fall sinned we all. Make sense? And so God's people, Adam is in God's place. He's in Eden, right? The Garden of Eden. Eden is this mountain temple, if you will, with, with a river pouring out to water the garden that is just below that mountain temple of Eden, and Adam is there with Eve, and they are at that point God's people in God's place, and um, they are under, notice that, God's rule and blessing. God is the Lord, he has blessed them. After the Lord creates them, male and female, he created them, the first three words that Genesis records for us in Genesis one twenty-eight, after Adam and Eve are created, it says, and God blessed them right? So they're under God's rule and blessing. Now, um, I, I want you to remember that the blessing means something. It's, it's not like you sneeze and somebody says, God bless you, right? It isn't just a kind of general way to say something kind, okay? To be under God's blessing here, um, it, it means to be um, dwelling with God and God dwelling with you. He's your God, you're his people. Does that make sense? Okay, that is what it means to be blessed. That's why the curse is to be separated from God, so that you're his enemy, so that you're under his wrath, so that you're apart from him. That's why to know him is eternal life, and to not know him is eternal death. You guys follow the language there in scripture you keep being given? Okay, that's why... The supreme blessing is to, um, as John will say in First John, is to be, is that he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And we want you to fellowship with us, with them. Make sense? Or with him, with God. And so that's what it means to be under his rule and blessing, is, is to be with him, to be rightly related to him. Everybody's related to him. The question is how? Are you his enemy or are you his friend? You, everyone on the planet has a relationship with God. It's the nature of the relationship that's the problem. So it's not true that you just tell people, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Yes, they do. The answer is yes, they have a relationship with Jesus. The question is, do you have a friendly relationship with Jesus? Or is he um, the judge and the king who will come back and cut you to pieces and throw you into hell forever, right? I mean, those are very different kinds of relationships. And so I want you to understand to be under God's rule and blessing is for him to be sovereign 
king in your life and him to also be father, friend, etc. You guys follow me on that? In the case of the son, brother, etc. So um, that's, that's the theme we're coming after. God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. We all know that gets lost in Adam. Adam sins. Now what's the first word we hear after the sin of Adam and Eve? What kind of word drops? It's not a blessing, but a curse. curse. God then starts to curse them. Okay? And so now they're under God's curse. Separated from God. We see that immediately. Death is coming for them. Life is to dwell with God. Death is to be apart from God. You follow me? Okay? That's why hell can be called the second death. Because you're separated from God in, in that sense forever. His, it's only his curse and wrath that are upon you. The only presence of God you experience in hell is his eternal wrath and justice, right? And so um, you're, that, that's why we're getting at this idea that blessing, curse. So the curse falls on Adam and Eve, and um, they are kicked out of God's place. No longer God's people, kicked out of God's place under the curse, and so now the rest of the story is trying to, un- is trying to if you will, um, show us the picture of God intervening to save us from that estate. It's, it's this relentless pursuit. I want you to hear that as we get to Hosea even. It's this relentless pursuit of the covenantal God, if you will, the husband of his people, chasing after his adulterous wife to redeem her and bring her back. Relentless pursuit. Throughout Scripture, we, we need to understand that picture of God. Yes, God is just. Yes, God will exercise wrath. But the story of the Bible, if you don't get a hold of this, the story of the Bible is about the God who, though he owes us wrath and justice, relentlessly pursues saving his wayward bride, right? Um, his wayward children, etc., etc. And so we're seeing that played out as even as the curse drops, God makes a promise. Genesis 3.15. I will what? Put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel, Okay. Uh, and the idea being, there's this promised son coming, this promised seed of the woman, this promised man coming, who is the offspring of Adam and Eve, right? Who is, if you will, the better Adam. Adam didn't crush the serpent when he slithered into the garden. Though Adam was given the job, Genesis 2.15, of protecting and guarding the garden, Adam did not protect and guard the garden and crush the head of the serpent. And so this seed who's coming will. Right? Um, and so, th- so, if you will, we start to see that story played out. Now I put up here um, the covenant prologue, Genesis, really as we look at the arrangement of the Old Testament, is kind of is our covenant prologue. Right? It's, you guys know what a prologue is? Um, pro is like before or first. And log comes from the word logos. Logos are uh, the first words, the words that come before. It's this kind of thing that we're saying before we say everything else, right? 
And the covenant prologue is Genesis. And Genesis is giving you the story. And it's giving it to you in ten toldots. Because remember the Hebrew word toldot means? Remember? We know, that, we know the Greek word for it. The Greek word is genea, which, anybody know? That's why we get the word Genesis, right? Which means beginning or, and or actually the generations, right? And so we have these generations. You heard genealogy in that word, genea, okay? We have these ge- generations, and you have these ten, gener- ten told dots or genealogies that are given, right? So you get a genealogy, 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 genealogy. The first genealogy you get is in Genesis 2-4, the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. And then you see that story, that cosmic story being played out with Adam and Eve, with Cain and Abel, and then with the rise of uh, wicked men, if you will. Then you get your next genealogy in Genesis 5, and it goes from Adam to Noah. And you guys understand what's coming, right? You come into Genesis 6, and now you have the story of the wickedness of the whole earth, God's flood on the earth, the people, uh, Noah and his family being saved on the ark. They come off the ark, God makes a covenant with Noah, and you immediately get another genealogy. Now it's of Noah's sons, um, most specifically Ham and Shem and Japheth, right? And then, after you get the genealogy of Noah's sons, you get the Tower um, of Babel. And now man falls into wickedness again, right? And God scatters them at the Tower of Babel, and then you jump into another genealogy, the genealogy specifically of Shem, then you jump into another genealogy, a genealogy of a guy named Terah. And then all of a sudden, the genealogy of Shem to Terah takes you to a man named Abram. And Genesis 12, 1 starts you off with Abram. And God intervening with this man who's from Ur the Chaldees, who himself is a pagan. God intervening and graciously calling him out. And dropping a five-fold blessing on him. Blesses him five times, um, Abram which corresponds to the five curses that have been dropped upon man at that point. Saying that in Abram, now, with this man here that we're focused on, the reversal of the curse has begun. God's going to do it through this guy. So it's not just the seed of the woman who's coming. Now we've known it's this, this, this man who's coming, but it's specifically this man who's coming from this man, Abram. And what comes from Abram. <clears throat> which is going to be, we're told... A multiplication of seed, right? He's going to have sons or children like the sand of the seashore, like the stars of the heaven. Genesis 15, like the stars of the heaven. Genesis 22, like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. You guys follow me on that? It's basically saying he's going to have multitudes of children, Abraham is. Okay, and so we're, we're told that story that he's going to be, that, that the one coming from him, his seed, the one coming from him, is going to be a blessing not only to Abraham's people, but to who? All the nations. And God makes this inviolable covenant with Abram, right? Genesis 15, where he says, if this covenant, I'm going to keep this covenant, I'm so committed to it, that, that if I don't, let me be torn apart, right? Which is what you see fulfilled at the cross and the sun. As, as he's torn asunder, for God, in, in, in order that God might keep his covenant, right? His promises. 
And so we see this developing story. And then Abram eventually has his name changed to Abraham, which isn't incidental, by the way. He's the father of many nations. And out of him is going to come this nation, specific nation. What's the nation of it called? Israel. Okay? I slow down to tell you that because sometimes we get to Genesis 12 through 15, 15, and we, or 50, Genesis 12 through 50, and we lose the fact that Genesis 12 through 50 is in the midst, uh, if you will, of a covenant prologue which has 11 chapters that begin it that aren't just focused on one nation. They're focused on a cosmic picture. You, you guys follow me on that? The heavens and the earth, right? All mankind. And we're, we get so focused in on Israel that we lose the sense that Israel is the solution to the problem in Genesis 1 through 11. That their story is the story that's being told to solve the problem that starts in Genesis 3. You guys follow me on that? Okay? So, you see this picture that Abram's going to get seed, Abram's going to get land, Abram's going to be blessed himself and be a blessing to all nations. Right? You guys remember that? Okay? I want to talk about that in just a second. But, then it goes from Abram, um, or Abraham, to Isaac, you get that genealogy, to Jacob, and from Jacob, and, and, and then Esau as well, where it's where you get some of his enemies, right? <laughs> but you get that genealogy as well. When you get the genealogy of Jacob, what are you getting? The genealogy of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you come to Joseph, and you hear the story of how Israel ends up in Egypt. And that helps you understand when you open Exodus 1 why this people are in Egypt and who they are and what God's doing with them in, a, in the greater picture, right? They end, you end Genesis, there's 70 of them. That's a big family, right? It's not a giant family, um, but it's a good-sized family, 70 of them. Um, Joel, Joel has become famous in deeper podcasts. I actually meet people in other, I've actually met people in other countries who are like, oh, you're the guy who teaches deeper, which I'm like, you're listening to it there, okay. And then they're like, is, and, and they're like, <laughs> they said, who's Joel? Right? <laughs> they heard about him. Oh, he's the guy, because I, I joke, at, at, Joel has a good shot at having more family members than Abram, right? At, at the end of Genesis. But not a very good shot at having more than Abraham has once you get to Exodus, right? Because by the time you get to Exodus, God has multiplied them. To the point where they are a nation, right? When you get to Exodus, they're a nation. And they're a nation under slavery. Um, but he's promised them land, seed, and blessing to the nations. You guys follow me on that? Now, here's what I want to ask. How does, how does this tie to the cosmic loss in Genesis 1 through 11? I don't want to lose sight of this as we move through the, ta- the, this, the rest of the story. How does the promise of land, seed, and blessing blessing really to all nations, tie to the cosmic loss in Genesis 1 through 11. Why does promising Abraham this stuff tie to that loss? How, how, do, how do those two things go together? You ought to be asking that question. You can't become so Israeliocentric, if you will, that you think this is all about just some land called Palestine. God's just obsessed with this one little piece of real estate. He just can't get his mind off it, okay? Um, and there's just one group of ethnic Jews, and that's just... He, 
that you can't get yourself so tied there, you've got to ask a bigger question. How does the promise of land to Abraham, the promise of seed to Abraham, the promise of blessing to Abraham and all nations, how does it tie to the cosmic loss in Genesis 1 through 11? You guys follow me on that? Okay. What's lost when man falls into sin? Yeah, man loses his connection with God. So he's no longer in God's place. He doesn't dwell with God in the way he once did. It doesn't mean that God in no way dwells with man. You'll see him dwell in the tabernacle or temple or what have you, right? But he doesn't, and you'll see the Holy Spirit indwells us. But he doesn't dwell with God in the same way he once did, where man walks on earth, right, in God's creation without any effects of the fall, sin, or curse. You guys follow me on that? Dwelling with him, right, in perfect harmony and peace and righteousness, etc. Okay? What we imagine when we think of the new heavens and new earth. You guys follow me on that? So... Man no longer has that kind of land, if you will. Right? Now we live in this land, even now, in the New Covenant, we live in this land as pilgrims or sojourners. Not too different from Abraham, living as one in tents, even when he came to the promised land. What does Hebrews 11 tell us he knew he was looking for? Even when he came to the promised land, he lived as a dweller in tents, knowing that he was looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God. Right? That he's looking for an even greater land. You can follow me on that? That's what we're all looking forward to. So that's how the land promise attaches. How does the seed promise attach? Abraham, you're going to have lots of seed. And through your seed, these nations will be blessed. What, how does the seed promise attach? Yeah, Abraham's to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? And he's to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers of God who glorify God. Are, are, is that, when you're an image bearer, it's like you're a mirror reflecting the truth. Okay, so here's the question. Um, is man across the earth currently, presently, reflecting the truth about God's glory, glorious character in their lives? Not very well, okay? It's not that there's no reflection of the truth. It's just that it's a pretty occluded picture, right? Doesn't look good, okay? The lie is being reflected out there quite a bit. And so, so this seed is going to be the one who comes as the second Adam, as the one who, who, who reflects the glory of God perfectly. He will be the image bearer of God perfectly. And then he'll recreate a people in him that are, are reflecting the image of God perfectly. Make sense? Okay. Save all mankind, etc. All right. Now, blessing. What is the blessing again? I'm going to ask this again. What, what was the blessing that was really lost at Genesis 3? What's that? Yeah, fellowship with God. That we'll dwell with God and he with us. Okay? That's why you notice almost all this comes back to dwelling with God, doesn't it? Being his people. Living perfectly with him. Right? In, in his place under his rule and blessing, having that communion with him, knowing him. That, that's, it's just God dwelling with us and us with him. That really is central. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. In fact, that phrase in Genesis 17, given to Abraham, I will be your God 
you will be my people, okay, is repeated not only in the Abrahamic covenant, but in the Mosaic covenant, in the Davidic covenant, and in the new covenant. And it's repeated in Revelation 21 in the new heavens and new earth. Again, it's central. I will be your God. Listen, if you want to pick up a phrase that takes you across the entirety of Scripture, I will be your God, you will be my people. That'll carry you across the whole of the text of Scripture. Okay? Um, It's a central promise. So, that is the blessing. And it's not just going to Israel. That blessing is originally given to who? All nations. Because the problem Abraham's been given to resolve, if you will, and his family's been given to resolve, is the problem of the fall of mankind, not the problem of the fall of Israel. You guys follow me on that? Okay, covenant prologue. That's a lot, but that's the most foundational thing you have to get a hold of. Now, when you get to, when I say covenant law, Exodus through Deuteronomy is now going to tell you the story of Israel and Egypt, okay, and they're they're under slavery and oppression, and God sends Moses, and Moses uh, becomes sort of the first major redeemer we see in Scripture, and lawgiver. And so Moses um, carries Israel out of the land, if you will. Not physically carrying them, but leads them out of, out of the land of Egypt and toward the promised land. You guys know the miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, the going into the wilderness for 40 years, Moses going on uh, to Mount Sinai, receiving the law, the giving of the covenant, and then what's given next? Uh, after he gives the law, he... <laughs> And sort of stipulations attached to it. What does he give after that? Sacrificial system and priests. Why? Because you're not going to keep this. We all know that. You need some hope. Right? And so, okay, and you get this story. How you build the instructions for building the tabernacle. So God can dwell with Israel. They build the tabernacle. God dwells in the tabernacle. He he actually fills the tabernacle. And as he does, Exodus leaves you this huge problem. No one can go in. Because God is holy and they are not. Not even Moses can go in. Then you get Leviticus. And Leviticus just spells out for you now how man will dwell with God. There is a priesthood, a high priest, and a sacrificial system. And most specifically the Day of Atonement. And this Day of Atonement is how man is going to dwell with God. You guys following the picture so far? Okay. It's through the slaughter of this lamb, these animals, that man will now dwell with God. And so... This is, and it's specifically the people of Israel. Then you get to, out of Leviticus and into Numbers, and the peoples are numbered, and we begin to head toward the promised land. And the peoples are often disobedient and unfaithful, and God continues to be faithful to them. Right? By the time you're at the end of Numbers, they've sinned so grievously, grievously, including Moses, that God says the first generation is not going to go into the land. They actually get to the edge of the land where they're they're standing there looking at the promised land and God says, you're going to stop right here. This whole generation is going to die here except for two men from this generation. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb and faithful. They are going to lead the second generation of Israel into the promised land, right? Over the Jordan River, into the land of Canaan. And so then you get more of that story in Deuteronomy um, and then Joshua. But in Deuteronomy, what you're getting now is Moses 
retelling. Deuter- Deuteronomy is Deutero's second Namas law. It's a second telling of the law. He's basically saying, you people, um, second generation, don't be like the first generation. Listen to me. I'm going to send you to the land with Joshua and Caleb. Go in there, conquer the land, right? Um, and, and, and be a blessing to the peoples. Even as you conquer them. I know it sounds strange, but... So, they go, they go at Joshua, in the book of Joshua, they're led into the land. They take the land. God's promises are fulfilled to Abram in that sense that they're in the land. The people are uh, a mighty nation. They live in the land. They're under God's blessing. What do they fail to completely do? Eradicate the pagan peoples, right? So now you're set up at the end of Joshua um, with this history. And that's why I'm saying covenant history. When you get to Joshua, you're now being told the story of Israel going into land and, um, and this history about them, okay? Now we'll call, if you will, in the Jewish order of the canon... We talk about the former prophets would be the history books. Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, etc. Those are the former prophets. And then the latter prophets are the commentary on that history. If you will, God has taken them to this land. He's given them a law. He's told them what he expects of them. And he says to them, as my people, here's how you're going to dwell in my land. And then you see that story played out in Joshua Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and then the latter prophets come and say, we're going to launch a covenant lawsuit against you. Okay? So which is where I'm going to go. Covenant life, when I say the writings, is this is what you see as like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. These are all writings basically saying, here's what life and living wisely in God, as God's covenant people looks like. Make sense? Okay, that's what those books exist to do. All right, so let me get into the former and latter prophets a little bit more so we can get to Hosea. The former prophets, like I said, from Joshua to 2 Kings, are the history of God's people in the land from the entrance in Joshua to exile in 2 Kings. What's being demonstrated is they demonstrate God's faithfulness to his covenant promises in narrative. Right? So the 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 former prophets show you Joshua judges first thing Samuel first thing Kings God is relentlessly faithful to his people um, and his covenant promises and you see that played out in a story or a narrative you guys follow me on that you see it played out in Joshua don't you you see it played out as <laughs> judges man couldn't be any clearer about God's faithfulness to his covenant promises of disobedient people to have a cycle of uh, disobedience oppression, crying out, save us. God sends a judge to save them. All goes well. Disobedience, right? Oppression, crying out, save us. God sends another judge to save them. And you just, again and again and again. Yet God continues to be relentlessly faithful. See that in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings? Even in the midst of wicked kings, God gives them king, kings and those kings, the, many of those kings go, become wicked. And you continue to see that played out. Those former prophets also demonstrate Israel's infidelity to the covenant in narrative form. In other words, if you remember in Deuteronomy and, Le- and Leviticus, um, etc., numbers, they're given commands, okay? 
Um, and they're told, be faithful to these. And are, are they faithful? No. Over and over and over again, um, over and over and over again, they're being unfaithful. They're, there's an infidelity. You guys follow me on that? And he's just driving them at that. Like, God is faithful to his covenant people and his covenant promises. You're unfaithful. Right? You're, 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 you're like the unfaithful wife who's out there cheating all the time, but your husband continues to be faithful to his vows. Right? He's going to keep them. Okay? And so then in the latter prophets, you have the inspired and prophetic interpretation of Israel's history under the covenant in the land. In other words, now when I say under the covenant in the land, which covenant am I referring to? Anyone? Okay. They, I'm referring to the Mosaic covenant. Remember, Abraham's covenant establishes these promises for them. Okay. Moses' covenant is given to them to govern their life as God's people in the land as this kind of church state, this kind of nation. Now, I say church state because they're called the ecclesia in the, in the Septuagint, the LXX, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, they're called the ecclesia of Yahweh, right, of, of, of the Lord, okay? They're the church of the Lord, the assembly of the Lord, they're called that lots of times in the Old Testament. The, or in, in Hebrew, um, the kahol, the kahol of Yahweh, which is just the same kind of thing as the assembly of the Lord. They're his church. That's why when Jesus comes in in Matthew 16 and says, I will build my church, the apostles don't say, stop, w- wait a minute. What in the world is a church? We have never heard of one of those. Okay? He doesn't say that. You guys notice that? It's like, I think sometimes people imagine that Matthew 16, Jesus is announcing something the apostles had never heard of. I'll build my church. There's never been one of those before. I'll build my church. And the apostles just go, oh, okay, a church, great. Okay, let's keep, let's keep going, right? Um, we, they, it's, you, you guys understand that? If you're completely ignorant about something, it's going to take you by surprise. You're going to ask questions about it. They don't because they're, they're used to hearing the word ecclesia, right? This, this assembly of the Lord, this church of the Lord. But Israel's a certain kind of church. They're a church state. They're a nation with civil laws and ceremonial laws and moral laws. You guys follow me on that? And the Mosaic Covenant is governing their life as a church state or a nation in the land um, that is built on, if you will, the Abrahamic promises, which is a temporary covenant. That's what Paul's going to get after in Galatians 3. It's temporary it's in place until that day in which, what? The air comes. The sun comes. Here's how you're going to live. This covenant's in place until the air or the sun comes. It keeps them in check like a pedagogue. Right? Um, so that in Hebrews 3, Paul, who I think wrote Hebrews, Paul says that Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is the son in God's house. Notice, Jesus and Moses are in the same what? The same house. One of them being a servant who's faithful and temporary and the other being the son who's permanent, Lord, creator, etc. You follow me on that? Okay, so 
there Israel's in the land governed by, if you will, the Mosaic Covenant, right? Um, which is built on top of the promises given to Abraham. That's why every time you read the Old Testament, just I challenge you to do it, okay? I, it, it, it'll only take you, if you just really read diligently, it'll take you less than a month to read the Old Testament, right? Um, and you think, that's a lot. But you know, take a couple months if you need. But here's the thing. As you read through the Old Testament, every time Israel sins and God is faithful to them, look at the language and ask yourself the question, under which covenant is God being faithful to them? And under which covenant is God judging them? You're going to find again and again, their sin is against the Mosaic covenant. Therefore, the covenantal curses with Moses are dropping on them. God's faithfulness every time is attached to, I made these promises to Abraham. You follow me on that? Every single time. I'm going to forgive you because I made promises to Abraham. I'm going to be good to you because I made promises to Abraham. I'm judging you because I warned you under Moses. You guys understand the distinction there? Okay. Now, so that's happening. Um, and that's national temporary covenant they're under. And the latter prophets are basically looking at the history of Israel that you find in, in Joshua through Kings. They're looking at that history and they're basically holding up the law of God and saying, here's what the law says under Moses. Here's what our history shows we did. We didn't keep the law. We were unfaithful. We were disobedient. God's judgment is coming. Okay? Rightly so. Do they stop at the word of God's judgment coming, though? What do they end up saying? God's judgment's coming. You're going into exile. God's judgment's coming. You're going to exile. But then what else do they say? Anybody? He's going to restore you. And you start hearing these, this Abrahamic language come through again. He's going to restore you. He's going to restore you. And he's going to restore you through someone. He's going to give you a new covenant. Not like the Mosaic covenant that you broke. Not like that covenant I, that, that, I, that I gave you when I took you out of Egypt by the hand, if you will. Though I was a husband to you and you broke it, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Right? He just keeps telling them this. There's, in fact, there's, a, there's David is coming. David's coming. David's been dead a long time by the time these prophets are saying this. Okay? David's coming. He's going to shepherd Israel. He's going to give you a new covenant. Right? He's going to be the suffering servant who sheds his blood for you. All this language starts coming out in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. God will dwell with you again in a new temple. A new temple's coming. And rivers of living water are going to pour out of that new temple and they're going to flood the earth. And give life everywhere they go. You guys following the picture? They're giving those kinds of language. Right? And then, of course, you hear Jesus come in and say, um, everyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. Right? Rivers of living water are going to flow out of my heart. Right? And he's going to water the whole earth. I am the temple. Tear it down and rebuild it in three days. God became flesh and tabernacled among us. Hear the language? I am the Davidic king. Matthew opens up saying, um, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, on purpose. That ain't just an accident. He doesn't just, they're not just obsessed with genealogies. You guys understand? They're trying to tell you the story. 
here comes the new David. I am the good shepherd, right? I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. I'm giving you a new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, right? All this language just being given to you on purpose. The story's being fulfilled, okay? So the latter prophets are holding up, are holding up the law and saying, look how you've been unfaithful. And at the same time, they're holding up the gospel promises and saying, God promises to be good, gracious, kind. He will not, he will not relent on keeping any of his promises. You guys follow? Not relent at all. Um, and we need to remember that. We need to remember that. I was having a particularly difficult day yesterday, and R. Scott Clark, a friend of mine, he knew, and he texted me, and he's like, don't, remember, don't forget, God, God keeps all his promises to Abraham, to all his people, forever. And I was like, that's, that's good for me to remember, right? So you, you just, you're just reminded God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises, right? Um, and the prophets are reminding you of that. Now, when we get to the minor prophets, um, I'm, I'm not going to go over this Deuteronomy stuff. Deuteronomy warns of all this that's coming. They're going to occupy the land. They're going to be unfaithful. They're going to go into exile. They'll be restored, right? And it gives us all this information. But look at where I say in summary. In summary... It's on your notes now, the part that we finally got to the notes Ron gave you. Okay, thank you, Ron, for doing that. But in summary, as we walk through the former prophets, we are read. Ah, sorry, we read. That word are shouldn't be there. We read the narrative evidence for the covenant lawsuit brought by the latter prophets. Okay, Um, when we walked through the former prophets, we were reading the narrative evidence, the story that the latter prophets are now prosecuting, like prosecuting attorneys. Here's the evidence. Here's the law. You broke it. Okay? Um, we, we saw the pattern of occupation, infidelity, exile, and return. We have witnessed that while Israel is, Israel is unfaithful, Yahweh is always faithful. Yahweh is building his kingdom with his people, his seed, in his place or his land, and his blessing is going to all nations. Which nations, which is that he dwells with them as their God and they with him as their, or as his people. So Hosea through Malachi are what we call the minor prophets or the twelve. And what I want you to know is, I'm coming to all this to tell you, the twelve are tied together thematically. So this morning we're going to look at the opening themes of that. And the next week we'll finish Hosea. And then week after week, my goal is to do one of these minor prophets a week. So you have to read the whole Minor Prophets. Sometimes that's 12 whole chapters. It might take you five minutes a day for the whole week. It's a lot. But um, ju- just so you know, but we're going we're gonna to work through every prophet week after week. But the I'm, reason I'm wanting to go through them kind of in rapid succession is because no matter where you go in the history of, of the text of Scripture, the 12 are always together. They're almost seen by Israel historically as one book. I don't mean by that they're not individual books by individual authors in different centuries. They are. But they're so thematically tied that they're treated like one book, just the 12. You guys follow me on that? From Hosea through Malachi, okay? You're sort of hearing the same messages over and over and over again. Now those messages have different emphases in different books. But you're hearing the same general message in the 12 over and over again. So, what are those themes? Here are the primary themes. The spiritual adultery of Israel. 
spiritual adultery is a way of taking the marriage um, covenant that we all know and comparing infidelity in marriage to idolatry. Right? You're in a covenant. You guys can see why the language is appropriate. You're in a covenant. God has made that covenant with you. Right? You commit idolatry, which is you chase after other suitors. Make sense? So the language is like you're a spiritual whore, right? Um, who's sleeping around with all kinds of other men when you have a faithful husband. That's the exact language, right? This kind of idolatry that we participate in. Every time that we run after, every time you sin, I, I, I'm not going to say it's this conscious, it's like you're consciously thinking this, but every time you sin, You've, you've generally taken something that God made good and you've made it into something ultimate. And now you're going to sin against God to get it. So think about sexual sin. God made sexual sin, I mean sex, good. We take good, what, what is something that's been given to us as good and we are so after generally relational intimacy that we will sin um, and have sex outside of marriage you follow me on that? We'll sin to get that thing. God made it good. We'll sin to get it. Follow me? Idolatry. Okay? Um, every time you're sinning, you recognize there's some sort of, um, generally, some sort of idolatry going on in your heart. There's something you love more than God. That's why you're sinning. And, and it's, it's, it's a bit like a man stepping out on his wife or a wife stepping out on her husband, right? Same, that's how the scriptures are going to compare it. In this case, God being the husband and the church or his people being the bride, right? Or the wife and stepping out on him, okay? So that becomes the pattern we see. Second theme we see, and you're going to see that through the minor prophets. They're just dropping that all over the place. You're, you're whores, right? You know, just all over the place. You're unfaithful. Um, wife, etc., etc. Okay. The next thing we're going to see is the curse of God for covenant violation. So you not only have the, that the fact there's spiritual adultery or idolatry, um, but you see the curse of God for covenant violation. If go read the minor prophets, or go read the twelve. You're going to find God's cursing them for covenant violation all over the place. All right. Um, third. Now, th- there's actually more than one theme in here, but I just sort of put them together. Third, you're going to see the latter day. Now, when I say latter day, you guys remember that language cues you off that we're talking about what? What's that? Yeah. Not Mormons. Very good. The latter day, not saints. Um, okay. What's that? The last days. This kind of eschatological moment that, that Peter announces has begun when the Spirit's poured out at Pentecost. When the Spirit's poured out at Pentecost, Peter says the latter days have begun. They're here, right? Um, in other words, this last era, um, at least this side of the new heavens and new earth, of redemptive history, this final era of redemptive history, they're looking forward to it. The latter day restoration and blessing of Israel. Israel's promise to be restored and blessed in the latter days with the inclusion of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are included into that latter-day restoration and blessing of Israel through a new David, a new covenant, 
This is also seen as the day of the Lord, which you'll notice that language all through the minor prophets. The new David, the new covenant, the latter day restoration and blessing of Israel, the blessing of all the nations, the day of the Lord. If you read the minor prophets, you can hear that language. The day of the Lord has cosmic salvation and cosmic judgment. Make sense? Okay, so, now, oops, now that I sort of cut you up, here's what I want to say about Hosea 1 through 3, and we're just going to look at them briefly. Hosea 1 through 3 functions as a prologue, I will argue, for all the minor prophets. In other words, what I want to say is this, and I'm really following Paul House in his book, The Unity of the Twelve, I think he's right. Paul House argues that you could take Hosea 1 through 3, and you could put it, you could prefix it to every minor prophet, and it would be appropriate. Hosea being the lead book of the twelve, in Hosea 1 through 3, sort of the whole story of the minor prophets, as far as their themes, are played out. You guys follow me on that? You're going to see greater or lesser emphases on each of those themes in each of the prophets. Some are going to emphasize one theme more than another. Okay? But the point is, the themes are there in Hosea 1 through 3. So this, this morning I want to read through Hosea 1 through 3 briefly. Look at those themes quickly, because they're going to, they're just, just going to, sh- now that you've heard this summary and been reminded of all this stuff we've done the last couple of years or whatever it's been, last few years, um, it's just going to pop out to you. The themes will come there real quick. So I don't have to spend a lot of time doing a lot of commentary. Then next week we'll look at Hosea 4, 4 through 14 so that we get the rest of the book of Hosea. So next week we'll just be Hosea 4 through 14. So let's look at 1 through 3 briefly. Turn to Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1. And it's like all that time and we're finally looking at this book. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. In other words, this is somewhere in the, uh, probably around 722 BC, um, right around 720, 722 BC range, based on the kings that are in place. Israel's not yet in exile, but they're on their way into, into Assyrian or uh, exile. And then next will come, a hundred years later, will become the Babylonian exile for Judah. Just follow me on that? Because Israel is broken into two nations at this point, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? The northern kingdom of Israel has com- committed apostasy across the board, and they're about to, or they're being carried into and about to be carried into complete um, exile, and then a hundred years later will come for Judah. Roughly. I mean, that's rough. Don't like, say, a hundred years exactly? No. I'm just... Roughly, okay? All right, so that's our time period. When the Lord first spoke to, through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, notice all caps on Lord because you're talking about our covenantal Lord, Yahweh. Um, and that word Yahweh means more than just that he's the covenantal Lord, but not less, right? Um, the Lord said to Hosea, go. Now notice what the Lord's going to command this prophet to do. Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. It's an interesting command, right? Go marry a whore and have children from that whore. Okay? So basically your, whore, your wife's going to be a whore and a whole ki- all your kids are going to be whores. Right? That's nice, isn't it? Okay? Um, that's qu- 
you can see, if you're not paying attention, the immediate object lesson happening in the life of Hosea right off. Hosea is going to be in the role of the husband, like the Lord is. Remember Jeremiah 31, 31? You violated my covenant when I brought you out of the land of Egypt, though I was a husband to you, declares the Lord. Okay? So the Lord is the husband. Hosea is playing that role. And Israel is the whore wife and the offspring of that whore wife, right? Um, he's supposed to go take it. Look why he says. For, why is he supposed to do this? Why is Hosea supposed to marry this kind of woman, have these kind of kids? For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. In other words, Israel is, is violating my covenant. They've forsaken me. They've, they've chased after other gods. Now look what he goes on to say. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Judgment. You guys hear it? Judgment, cursing of God for covenant violation. Make sense? Right there. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Cursing. You hear it? Covenant violators, spiritual whoredom, cursing. But I will have, now listen, I will have mercy on the house of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. How is he going to save Judah? Just he's going to intervene directly, which is interesting. Um, which, which, uh, which, king, which, you know, part, the northern and southern kingdom is Jesus' Jesus's tribe in. Southern, he's actually from the tribe of Judah, right? The house of David. Won't get into all that right now, but let's keep going. When she had weaned, verse 8, we no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. You guys hear the direct contrast to Genesis 17? I'll be your, pe- I'll be your God, you'll be my people. Yet the number of it, verse 10. Now notice this kind of almost immediate reversal. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Man, that's Genesis 22 right there. Abrahamic promise. which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Land, seed, and blessing all come together right there, don't they? You're going to be in that place. You're going to be my people. You're going to be called children of the living God. You're going to be blessed. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint them for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. It's a fascinating first chapter, isn't it? Marry a whore, have whore children, because Israel's a whore, and her children are whores. Um, I'm going to curse her. All things, I'm going to destroy her. I won't forgive her sins. I will have no mercy on her. I, you know, so name your kids that. They're not my people. I have not, want nothing to do with you. All, all, guys, curses under the Mosaic Covenant. And then, all of a sudden, this Abrahamic language comes in. 
I'm going to make your children like the sand of the seashore. You're going to be my people. You're going to be children of the living God in my place. Israel, both northern and southern kingdom, are going to be redeemed. You guys hear the reversal there? Okay? Let's go to... It's all compressed, though. That's why, by the way, the day of the Lord is this compressed event where you say, God's going to come, slaughter his enemies, save his people. And that's why John the Baptist is like, after he's announced that Jesus is here, he's like, here comes the, the Davidic king, the Messiah, the day of the Lord is here. What is he expecting Jesus to do? slaughter his enemies, save his people, right? That's why it says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. He'll gather the wheat up into his barn and the chaff he'll throw into unquenchable fire. You guys remember that? John the Baptist language? John the Baptist, and then when Jesus is like out just healing people and being, and you know, announcing mercy and forgiveness, John the Baptist is in prison by Herod and John the Baptist sends some of his emissaries and goes, now are you him or not, right? Well, what's he asking? Well, I thought you were going to save your people and judge your enemies. It looks like it's not going so well right now for me, okay? And, and you understand the question, right? Because it's all compressed like this in the Old Testament, and then it's sort of, it's a telescoping effect. You see it elongated in the new. All right, so ver- chapter 2. Say to your brothers, you are my people and your sisters, you have received mercy. Now look, look, he's going to go, plead with your mother, plead. For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her, two bre- from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and like a parched, make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge her, up, her way with thorns. By the way, whenever you have thorns growing in the land instead of fruit, you have cursing, right? You have a dry, barren wilderness with thorns and no mercy. It's all cursing kind of language, actually coming even out of Genesis 3 here. So you go on. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She's not even going to let back into my place, if you will, right? Um, so she, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but, she shall, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil. And who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. In other words, she gave Baal worship for all that stuff. False gods. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wood and my, my wool sorry, and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her appointed feasts. In other words, I, have, I will have zero interest in her external religious behavior. Because she's out there worshiping idols, unrepentantly sinning, and then coming to church pretending like God just is going to let it all go. 
right, while in unrepentance. You guys follow that? In other words, the only way that, that you go to church thinking God's going to forgive you um, is if you understand that God forgives those who are repentant, right? So he goes on. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, which she burned offerings to them, or see, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with a ring and jewelry, and went after other lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. You guys see the, the idolatry and spiritual adultery just kind of being brought together as one picture? Hosea's wife is Israel. Okay. Now notice he goes on. Therefore, now, now follow this. All this judgment, right, for her whoredom, to where it seems completely bleak. It's done. Now look. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And, I will, and there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day. Folks, that's the new covenant that Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 are pointing you to. I will make for her a covenant for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. Right? That's the that is the new heavens and new earth. End of all sin, suffering, and death. End of war. And I will betroth you to me forever. Right? What does Paul say? Bear with me, Second Corinthians 11, bear with me in a little divine jealousy, if you will. And I, I, I feel a godly jealousy for you. Bear with me. I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ. Right? And I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, that's covenant love, incidentally, hesed, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall say, Jezreel. That's what they're going to answer, which means God will sow. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Incidentally, this language here, which is clearly about Israel's restoration. Paul, in Romans 9, 25 and 26, says applies to Gentiles who come to faith in Christ. Right? Just as a side note. Spend time thinking about that sometime. All right. Um, when people start talking about replacement theology, no one believes that. I've never met anybody who believes in replacement. It's, it's inclusion theology, if you will. Expansion theology. Fulfillment theology. It was always promised that the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to all nations. 
always. So Gentiles are included in the promises given to Israel. All right, in the Christ. Right, okay, chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. In case you're not getting the point, are you starting to get it? All right, okay. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of, and, and a, um, how do you say that? Lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so, also, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell. Now listen to this. <clears throat> the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. In other words, um, they're going to be waiting. What he's saying is the children of Israel are going to be waiting. It's going to be a period of waiting. You guys know they go into a period of waiting, right? From exile until the Christ. They're waiting, waiting, no king. Okay? Afterward, verse 5, afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. And notice this language, David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness when? In the latter days. David their king will come and they'll be returned in the latter days. That's why when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and is coronated king, he pours out a spirit like any king who's coronated at that time gives gifts to his subjects. He pours out his spirit upon his people at his coronation. And Peter announces the latter days are here. This is them. The new David the king has come. The new covenant's been given. And the Spirit is going to go um, and announce that good news through his church to every people, tribe, and tongue. Make sense? Okay, so you see the themes there just in Hosea 1 through 3. 4 through 14 are just going to play those themes out. And I, what I'm saying is every minor prophet's going to play those themes out. Okay? Um, any questions? No? Three chapters of Hosea, the whole Bible story up till this point in an hour and ten minutes. So say what you will. It was a lot, but we got there, right? So it's good. Okay, so um, this is what happens. If you spend enough time, guys, as we spend this time, you're going to notice the elements of the story that is going to pop for you real quick. All right? Um, no questions at all at this point? Okay. Hosea 4 through 14 next week. So that means read Hosea 4 through 14 and notice the themes. Watch for them. Watch for that mosaic language, guys. Because remember, the, the case that you see, for example, in Leviticus um, 25 or 26, 27, 28, right in there, that, the, 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 the law that here's the curses that are going to come upon you if you violate the law. Um, the people have violated the law, and I hear the curses coming. When you don't recognize the language, remember it's all rooted in the prophet saying, here's how you violated the covenant. Here's the curses God promised. When you don't recognize the language of restoration, it's all rooted in the Abrahamic promises and the Davidic promises. There's this coming Davidic king. God has promised to be your people. He'll be, I mean, to be your God, and you'll be his people. God has promised to bless you 
and all nations, etc., etc. Just keep that in mind. Because if you, otherwise you read the prophets and you're like, what are they talking about? They got famines over here and floods over here and somebody's a whore and everybody's a whore and God's having mercy on nobody and God's having mercy on everybody and what in the world is going on? And where's David? All of a sudden David appears and then there's this shepherd and then there's this priest and then there's this, right? And you're wondering, what's all this? This all ground in the language and what's happened in the story of Israel before that. Their promises and their history. Make sense? Okay, so take time, just notice that as you read. All right, so um, Hosea 4 through 14 next week and then the following weeks, um, right, you know, which prophet comes after Hosea? You guys know? Joel. Joel. So what are we going to do the week after that? Uh, not ne- after next week, we're going to do Joel. That's really it. And then the next prophet? We'll do that. Huh? Amos. Good. Amos. Interesting. Amos gets, Joel gets picked up at Acts, as does Amos. You guys remember? Joel 2 gets picked up in Acts. Um, in Acts 2. Right? And, um, and Amos gets picked up in Acts 15. A- Amos is interesting because Amos is talking about the restoration of the people of Israel. Um, this specific passage that gets picked up when the ha- house of David or the tent is rebuilt, etc. And, and the apostles look at Amos and they look at all the Gentiles coming to faith and they say... Amos is being fulfilled here. How, how does Gentiles being saved have anything to do with the restoration of Israel? But that's what they're going to say in Acts 15. Right? Um, and so we're going to see these prophets played out. Um, all right. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your kindness to us. Um, the fact that you created us, that you made, even after we sinned, um, you made promises to redeem us, and you have kept those in your Son in spades, and we give thanks. We pray that we would continue to remember that you are a promise-making and promise-keeping God, and that we would, give, we would just rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.